Uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as we continue this study that we've been in for quite a while, this discussion of spiritual gifts, but more specifically as we've turned the corner and began to look at verses 12 and following this important uh, doctrinal matter of the body of Christ. Certainly the context is still spiritual gifts, but it's really um, an important doctrinal matter as well. Um, I wonder, uh, though, if I were to ask you this question, what does, what does Christmas smell like? Like, would anybody give me any answers top of mind? Does Christmas smell like anything to you? Fraser fur. Fraser fur. Not just fur, but a specific kind of fur. Fraser fur. What, anything else come to mind? Orange. Orange, okay. Got some citrus back there. What else? Cinnamon. Frankincense and myrrh. Listen to you going all biblical. Here's the, here's the church kid right here. It smells like love and forgiveness and God and Jesus in the Bible. Amen. Just kidding. These two right here, just so you guys know, I will always point to them. Uh, they have been in my class since the beginning, and when there was like two people in it, them and, well, actually two other people, uh, faithful, and they're always up near at the front, and when they're not here, I, I'm like, let's, we might as well cancel class. So after, uh, after uh, mocking him publicly, i got to say that, you know, to kind of redeem myself a little bit. But isn't it interesting to think about, uh, you know, you talk about the smells of Christmas. Obviously, Christmas doesn't have a smell. I don't think it does anyway. I haven't really studied that. I haven't really read any scientific studies on that. But, but in fact, the, the, the aromas that we mentioned have to do with the, the smells that are common during that period of time or... Uh, maybe there are smells that we have in our home, maybe there are candles that we burn, maybe there's food that we traditionally prepare, whatever it might be. Uh, but it's interesting to think about how we can very quickly and readily associate something like an aroma with something like a season of the year or a celebration of sorts. And that's nothing you know, uh, earth-shattering. That's not some kind of new piece of data, unlike the data about the uh, Christmas carols and, and egg casserole in your mouth. That's new, I'm, I'm sure, for most of you. But, but the fact that we associate that with our sense of smell is, is really um, sort of common to think about, but it's also elemental of a profound reality when you think about the nature of the sense of smell. I, I mentioned a few, few weeks ago that I came across an article about this that just struck my attention as we're talking about the body of Christ and the Apostle Paul's use of even the sense of smell as one of his examples that he's highlighting to illustrate these more profound points that we'll get into in just a moment. But I wanted to read a little bit of, of this just as a way of introduction uh, for, to help us think about uh, this body metaphor and even the significance of it as the Apostle Paul uses it to illustrate uh, the body of Christ. The, the name of the article is uh, What Your Nose Knows, uh, written by the National Institutes of Health in, in uh, 2015 or 16, I guess, 2016. It says this, your sense of smell enriches your experience of the world around you. That's kind of what we just kind of alluded to in our, our example of the smell of Christmas. Different scents can change your mood, transport you back to a distant memory, and may even help you bond with loved ones. Your ability to smell also plays a key role in your health. If your ability to smell declines, 
It can affect your diet and nutrition, physical well-being, and everyday safety. Whether coffee brewing, pine trees in a forest, or smoke from a fire, the things we smell are actually tiny molecules released by substances all around us. When we breathe in these molecules, they stimulate specialized sensory cells high inside the nose. Each of these sensory cells has only one type of odor receptor, a structure on the cell that selectively latches on to a specific type of smelly molecule. There are more smells in the environment than there are odor receptors, but a given molecule can stimulate a combination of these receptors, creating a unique representation in the brain of a particular smell. It is estimated that the number of odors that people can detect is, get this, is between 10,000 and 100 billion, or even more. Now, I have to ask the question, like, who counted that? Like, who, how do they know that? That's right. It's like it's somewhere between one and one gazillion, something like that. But I would agree that there's probably many, many more types of uh, smells that can be te- detected than we would commonly deduce. Uh, this, is, this was said by Dr. Gary Beechup, uh, Bochamp, I guess. Dr. Gary Bochamp, <laughs> listen to this, a taste and smell researcher at Monsell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia. So I have two questions. Did you know that there was a taste and smell, excuse me, a, a chemical senses center in Philadelphia, and did you know that there was a smell researcher that worked there? Did you know that? Well, here he is. We all have different combinations of odor-detecting cells in our noses, he explains. So people vary greatly in their sensitivity to smells. In fact, when you or I smell the same physical thing, our perceptions may be very different. Beauchamp says, because smell information is sent to different parts of the brain, odors can influence many aspects of our lives, such as memory, mood, and emotion. For thousands of years, fragrant plants have been used in healing practices across many cultures, including ancient China, India, and Egypt. Aromatherapy, for example, aims to use essential oils from flowers, herbs, or trees to improve physical and emotional well-being. I know essential oils people are like, yes! But wait a second, you voodoo witch doctors. Hang on a second. To date, there's little scientific evidence supporting aromatherapy's effectiveness for most health, most health issues. So all you aromatherapy witch doctors who are trying to come around me and rub oil on my hand when I have a headache, I'm being facetious. This is a preference issue. Use all the oils you want. And there are obviously powerful soothing effects to, to smells, as I said, but I just thought I'd take a little jab there. Uh, this, kind of, this kind of makes me think of when we first moved here. Again, I'm getting way off the rails a little bit. But when we first moved here, we came from Southern California. We were a part of Grace Community Church there, a very big church in, in Southern California. And we move here, and we come here, and, and Faith Community Church was the church we were intending to go to. We knew that uh, we didn't know Shane, but we had a close friend that was close to Shane. We knew he was a master seminary grad. We thought this would be a great fit for us. The church was like way down Arnold Mill Road, past like sheep pastures and all that sort of stuff, in this very small building that eventually became very, very cramped with people. And I'll never forget early on in our experience there hearing about a contingency of faith community church people who drove to South Carolina to buy whole milk some kind of whole unpasteurized milk. And I thought, is this a cult? Like, what is happening here? 
So I have some of the same kinds of uh, humorous, sort of innocent humor, nothing serious about this, the essential oils kind of uh, um, fascination that people have and whatnot. So if you're offended by that, please don't take offense. I'm only kidding. Uh, you know, just give me, some, give me some lavender at any point in time you want. All right? Uh, Anyway, he goes on, lavender, for example, is a good example, which is touted as a relaxation odor, Belchamp says. But the question is, is that a relaxation odor because we've had past experience with this particular odor where we've been relaxed and so we've learned the association? Scientists continue to examine how different types of aromatherapies might affect our health and well-being. Smell is also important for your perception of taste. Chewing your food releases aromas that travel from your mouth and throat to the nose. Without smell, we can detect only five basic tastes. Sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and savory. But our brains incorporate information from both taste and smell receptors to create the perception of many different flavors. Some people may think they've lost their sense of taste of food if it, excuse me, some people think they've lost their sense of taste if food begins to taste bland or slightly off, but in fact, they may have lost their ability to smell. Many things can cause smell loss, a stuffy nose or a harmless growth in the nose can block air and thus odors from reaching the sensory cells. Certain medical conditions like some uh, medications like some antibiotics or blood pressure pills can alter smell. These effects are usually temporary. Your smell should come back once you've recovered or stopped the treatments. But some things can cause a long-lasting loss of smell. A head injury or a virus, for example, can sometimes damage the nerves related to smell, and your ability to smell may naturally fade as you get older. Some of you know that Alicia, my wife, uh, uh, one of the symptoms that she experienced when she first had COVID b- back in 2020, right before Thanksgiving, by the way, was an extreme loss of taste and smell that lasted for a year. She went a whole year with just blandness. And she will testify that that was a very real struggle for her. The, uh, the impact of not being able to taste or smell anything immediately eliminates a certain joy and euphoria that you experience when you smell and taste and eat and enjoy the things that we kind of take for granted. I think that she would be able to testify how powerful and important her sense of smell and her sense of taste is in a very real and tangible kind of way. This article goes on to talk about loss of of taste and smell as we age and these kinds of things and about how our sense of smell... Is a, is, it can be a, provide a sense of warning for us and how, you know, as uh, those that have, have reduced sense of smell end up becoming more likely to experience harm if, for example, there's a fire because they can't really detect the sense of smoke or they might be able to not be able to detect the, sense, uh, the smell of natural gas, for example. So there's all these different implications, not just uh, implications of the enjoyment of, of food or, or these kinds of things or aromas that are soothing or comforting or that conjure up or connect with uh, memorable experiences that are special to us and that sort of give us a sense of calm or peace or joy or delight or these kinds of things. But it's also a warning signal. It's a protective element. We have danger-type signals that we experience with our sense of smell. All that to say is that even when you look at something as uh, somewhat, I don't know, silly in a way, an article on what your nose knows... 
you can begin to understand the depth of meaning in the Apostle Paul's analogy and the use of the body as he's, he's brought it forward for us, particularly when he's speaking about the importance of all parts of the body. There is no sense in which you can minimize or detract from them, and that's part of what we're going to focus on more in depth today is the significance of every part of the body, even those that we might take for granted. Let's read our passage together. We'll start uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, and we'll read down through verse 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand and I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now last week, we looked at Paul's, basically Paul's doctrine of the body of Christ. We certainly didn't look at it with a tremendous depth and expansiveness, but we did, we did sort of survey several key passages in which the Apostle Paul repeatedly refers to the body or employs the body metaphor to speak of the body of Christ, the church, God's people, redeemed and in Christ. And we, we noticed in those New Testament letters that the Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans and other places that he employs this powerful and vivid body metaphor to describe, as I said, the church, and in the many references to the church, he repeatedly highlights several key principles. So the principles that we're sort of looking at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they're sort of emerging from this discussion, this very explicit discussion, and much more detailed handling of the use of the body as a metaphor, and even the various parts of the body as a metaphor for the body of Christ. This is writ large throughout the Apostle Paul's overall doctrine of the church. And we looked at that fairly extensively, and in fact, it's, a, it's an extremely profound study to just, just read through all the passages of Scripture in the Apostle Paul's letters in which he references the body of Christ. And you will be enriched and encouraged and probably challenged, as I think we were to some degree last week, by just considering the significance of the body of Christ the significance of our relationship to the head, which is Christ, by virtue of our relationship within the body of Christ. All these different characteristics that we noted how the Apostle Paul, it was the body of Christ for whom he was willing to suffer and die. 
on behalf of the mission and ministry that Christ had called them to as an apostle to the Gentiles. The significance of the body of Christ cannot be overstated, and you certainly couldn't say that if you just did a survey of the Apostle Paul's references to it in his New Testament epistles. And we've noted these key characteristics of the body. Over the last few weeks, we've, we've noted several of them. First, we noted the observable diversity within the body. You see this in the first part of verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members. And if just a quick re- re- recollection of that, that point, this really is stated by the Apostle Paul as almost just like an observable reality. It's, it's a sort of inescapable He's not pointing to diversity as some kind of good in itself. Rather, he's emphasizing the point that diversity is as common and normal and therefore should be common and normal and understood and appropriately appreciated within the body of Christ just in the same way as you notice the diversity of the members of your own physical body. That's the point. There is an observable diversity within the body. It's very clear. It's obvious. But we also noted that this diversity within the body uh, and really within any social structure, if you want to broaden it out just for the sake of reference, diversity in any social structure, but specifically within the body of Christ, that is absent a unifying transcendent principle will always devolve into division, faction, chaos, potentially even violence in certain situations. That there has to be a unifying principle. That's why I made the point that diversity in and of itself is not some kind of inherent virtue to be held up as virtuous on its own. There has to be a unifying, transcendent principle that brings all these diverse parts together in common purpose, in common mission. And so that's also implicit and explicit in the Apostle Paul's teaching, which was our second point, we noted the essential and transcendent unity within the body. You see this in the second part of verse 12 and on to verse 13. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. There is a transcendent principle of unity here that the Apostle Paul is referring to. That the the goodness and the nobility and the virtue in our diversity is directly and ultimately contingent upon the unity that we have in the Spirit as a spiritual body. All being baptized into that body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. That's just that's sort of a a colloquialism to reference the the, to cover the entire waterfront of points of identification. Religious, ethnic, socioeconomic strata, wealth, that kind of thing. We were all made to drink of one spirit. This transcendent unifying principle is absolutely essential. And it's not just essential in that we are working that out and cultivating that and fostering that kind of unity, but it's an ultimate transcendent unity that is, that is wrought by Christ himself sovereignly, by the spirit, as he has made us one in Christ. It is that transcendent reality that then should compel us to work out what is, in fact, transcendently true. This is is really a, a fundamental principle of sanctification in general anyway. You and I are to be working out day in and day out what is already transcendently true. 
You understand that, right? That's what sanctification is all about. We are not working our way to heaven. We are not working our way to pleasing God for some ultimate purpose of entrance into the kingdom of God. We are justified in Christ and in Christ alone. We are sanctified in Christ and in Christ alone. We are new creations in Christ and in Christ alone. And we are in the process of just working that out, mortifying the flesh and walking in the spirit so that we satisfy the desires of the spirit. That's the fundamental principle of sanctification in the work of God in us, in the work of Christ in us. And so it stands to reason that that would be a fundamental principle in this understanding of the body of Christ, this transcendent unity that we are just working out in real time. And it eliminates, really it eliminates, or I would say maybe a better way to put it, it right-sizes the significance of what are the common cultural distinctions of religion, ethnicity, and social status that get held up and magnified as goods in and of themselves, but they only divide. Transcendent unity draws all of these varied parts, this diversity together in a beautiful harmony. And it's only possible through that transcendent principle that that can happen. We also observed that individual participation in the body, or I should say individual participation in body life, is not optional. We see this in verses 14 to 16. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not, not, not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And the primary point here at the beginning of this section is that we don't get to just opt out of our engagement in life in the body. It's an established reality for you if you are in Christ. You are a part of the body, and your part is essential to the body's health in the whole. And this idea of us sort of disqualifying ourselves or discounting our viability or our usefulness in the body for, some, for whatever reason, we talked about a couple of possible reasons there, but they could be many. They could be many possibilities for why we would say something like, you know, the personification of body parts. Well, if I'm not, if I'm not a hand, then I, I'm no good, right? I don't have any use. We could choose any part of the body and say, well, I'm not an eye, so I'm not useful. You know, we could, we could kind of use the same kind of uh, uh, analogy there and say, we've just, we, just, we, don't, we don't have the right kind of gifts, or I'm not very outgoing, or you know, I'm kind of a shy person, or, you know, I've been for a while, and I'm, there's, no one's ever really asked me to do anything. I and mean, we could come up with all kinds of ways to sort of flesh this out in our own kind of experience. But the fact of the matter is, is what the Apostle Paul is saying is, your participation in body life is a consequence of the reality, the transcendent reality, that you are an essential part of the body. That's what it's contingent upon. And we talked about the call... For example, when you look in Romans 12 or 1 Peter, you see that both of those apostles say, you have a gift, use it. Get after it. Start serving. If it's speaking, then speak. You don't have to have a lectern in front of 60 or 70 people 
to use your gift. You don't, you don't have to have some kind of sign-up sheet that you signed up on and some authority in the church said, hey, you know what, you signed up and we're going to interview you. We're going to see if you meet the expectations of this particular job in the church and then you can start serving. No, you just serve. And you, you, your, primary, your primary avenue, your primary venue of ministry in the body of Christ might be conducted many times over at your favorite coffee shop. As you come here and you're equipped and you're challenged and you're exhorted in the, in the service, you're enjoying corporate worship and the accountability of other believers and people are praying for you and you're sharing concerns and things that you're engaged in and people you're trying to serve and minister to and you get sort of worked over and challenged and encouraged and then you go next week and you spend you know two or three days at the coffee shop counseling and encouraging, discipling and listening to people. Or maybe it's just that you're very, very sensitive to people's needs and you're a prayer warrior and so you hear people speaking to you and your entire ministry your contribution to the body of Christ, no one ever sees. Because you're picking up on and keying in on needs that are being expressed, and you, distinct from most everyone else in the body, listen to those, notate them, and will spend hours laboring in prayer on behalf of another brother and sister. Use your gifts. Your part in the body is essential. It's transcendent in nature. It's not optional. And that leads to our second, our next principle as it relates to this, sort of a, a counter to that, that, that uh, individual exaltation in body life is not acceptable. Individual participation is not optional, but at the same time, individual exaltation in body life is not acceptable. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I mean, this is an absurd notion in the in the vernacular of the Apostle Paul here. And whether it's self-exaltation or the improper exaltation of an individual by others, either way, whether it's me exalting myself or whether it's other people improperly exalting me, it doesn't matter how it happens. It's just, it's not acceptable. It's not, it's not part and parcel to body life. No one should be able to say or should be referenced by others you're not what I am, so I have no need of you in the life and the body. This is a reference to this unified and interdependent nature of the physical body, which is the same as the unified and interdependent nature of all the parts of the spiritual body. There is no such thing as I have no need of you. That's an absurd notion in the Apostle Paul. Now, obviously, it happens, whether it's expressed in those terms or whether it's just a subtle sort of known reality that can happen in any congregation, but it's certainly not part and parcel to the actual spiritual body of Christ. It should not be characteristic. It's not something that should be accepted. It's not something that should be just accepted as, well, that's just how that church is, or that's just, that's just how those people operate, or that's just sort of the culture of that, that church. No, that's, that's not the culture of a church. That's something else. That's sort of sin on display is what that is. Both of these forms, whether it's individual exaltation or, or some others exalting, it, it, it's, it's evident throughout Scripture. This is a prominent concern for the Apostle Paul. We noted this last week. Chapter 1 opens with Paul lamenting over the divisions in the church that were resulting from the improper exaltation of leaders by others. It wasn't Paul that was exalting himself. It wasn't 
Apollos, it wasn't Peter, certainly wasn't Christ, but yet the, the sort of the mantras that the Apostle Paul references in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Christ. There was this exaltation of individual leaders by others in the church. And then throughout the letter, we also see evidences of individual self-exaltation based upon class or societal rank or social, secular perceptions, excuse me, secular perceptions of wisdom garnered through influential oratory. There's this big emphasis on speech and oratory in, in his letters, uh, in his letter at the beginning, near the beginning of the first few chapters. This sense of spiritual superiority based upon some kind of public manifestation of giftedness, in other words. You see the Apostle Paul going after that all throughout this letter. Anthony Thistleton in his commentary says, It is hardly mere speculation to imagine that those who perceive themselves as as possessing the high status gifts of knowledge and wisdom or of the power to heal or to speak in tongues could be tempted to think of themselves as the inner circle on whom the identity and function of the church really depended. I mean, there are all these other people, but, you know, the real players, the real movers and shakers are these people over here. And it's obvious to everybody. Did you hear that person speak or teach? Did you see that miracle performed? I mean, it's, it, those are the people that are really making this place work. This inner circle kind of idea based upon public manifestations of some kind of giftedness or ability or social status that also is corresponding to some kind of public display of giftedness. The Apostle Paul goes right after this, for example, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verses 18 through the first part of verse 21. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. So let no one boast in men. Translation, Corinthians were boasting in men. They were exalting themselves based upon their exhibitions of wisdom. And he's saying, don't be deceived by that. That's utter folly. You need to exchange the wisdom of men for the wisdom of God, which is folly in this world. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as as if you did not receive it? Anyone who has any kind of particular public manifested gift that, that tends to sort of garner a certain following or a certain crowd, this is the verse for them. You have nothing that you didn't receive And so why on earth would you boast and brag and think of yourself in ways as though you didn't receive it? You are sitting around in death and darkness. You were under the wrath of Almighty God when he rescued you. And then he graciously, by his spirit, baptized you into his body and gifted you. And you're going to brag about your gift? That's the point. He goes on in verse 8, already you have all you want. He's sort of mocking their own sort of 
proclamations. You know, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And then he says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. In other words, you're, you're foolish. You're thinking something that is completely untrue about yourself. You're exalting yourself. Down in verse 18 of chapter 4, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Now the Apostle Paul is going to say, Daddy's coming home. (laughs) But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This gets at the Apostle Paul's heart and passion for this principle. Self-exaltation within the body of Christ is utterly unacceptable. There is no place for it. Theologically, practically, functionally, no place for it. The Pillar New Testament commentary says this, The evidence of the rest of the epistle suggests that it would have been members of the social elite who considered themselves the, quote, inner circle on whom the identity and function of the church really depended, raising the likelihood that they are also the ones who were more likely to have been exercising the most highly prized gifts. Although it is impossible to know who was speaking in tongues or practicing certain other gifts, the social elite would have been the ones most likely to be recognized for their knowledge, wisdom, and oratorical skills. That is, the ones most likely to have been considered enriched with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge and therefore not lacking any spiritual gift, as Paul references in chapter 1. It's not just that all these parts, they go on, It's not just that all these parts are needed by the body as a whole, but no individual part may claim that they do not need some other part that God has placed in the body, since their own well-being depends on the health of the whole body, and for that functioning of each part is necessary. I mean, that's why he's using this body metaphor. That's why this body metaphor is so powerful, because it's so palpable. It's so obvious, patently obvious. You can't have certain parts of the body just deciding that I don't need to be a part of this body anymore and everything will be fine. You can't have a certain part of the body saying to another part of the body, I don't need you. Let me just cut this off. Let me just cut this out and expect the body to function healthily. It's an absurd notion. So it's just as absurd to think that some kind of self-exaltation has a place within the body of Christ. Well, then fifthly, as we continue to move through this text, Another point, selective recognition in body life is encouraged and expected. This is sort of the the flip side. Not self-exaltation, but certainly selective recognition in the body is encouraged and expected. We see this in verses 22 to 26. So this is the, the countervailing argument here. He starts off by saying, on the contrary. So rather than self exaltation, rather than saying... I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now here, you have this stark contrast to his rebuke of these members who were exhibiting attitudes and actions of self-exaltation. He now begins to encourage proper recognition of those parts of the body he refers to as weaker, less honorable, and unpresentable. Weaker, verse 22. Less honorable, the first part of verse 23, and unpresentable in the second part of verse 23. And notice this very important qualifier. There's actually two, two qualifiers using the same Greek term in verse, verses 22 and 23. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker in verse 22, and then in verse 23, those parts of the body that we think less honorable. It's the same Greek word that means to think or to suppose. So it's translated seem in one phrase, and it's translated that we think less honorable in the other. This is a key qualifier to what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. In no way is Paul somehow reinforcing this hierarchy in the church, which, by the way, a hierarchy that would have been common in society at that time. Hierarchy, a class-based hierarchy in society at that time was known, it was sort of like accepted, it was just the reality that they experienced, but it was also reinforced over and over and over again. There are many examples. In fact, there's one example of a proclamation by an official that uses body metaphor language that's very similar to what the Apostle Paul uses here. So the Apostle Paul was drawing upon very common understanding and thinking and then completely inverting it and giving it spiritual life through the inspiration of the Spirit. Because the way that the body was used in societal reference was to hold in place, to reinforce this kind of hierarchical view of individuals. You're here... And you're here. So just do your part. Don't try to think that you're something other than you're not. You're just here. So stay here. And make sure that you're contributing to what this is up here, the health of this part of the body. The reference in the the excerpt that I read had to do with referring to the Senate, those that were in charge as the belly. And all, and all the, everybody else were the ones that were to be working the hands and the feet to work to provide for the belly, to feed the belly of the Senate, that kind of thing. The Apostle Paul is using the body metaphor to completely throw, turn that on its head. So here, he's not referring to those who are weaker or less honorable or unpresentable as references to reinforce this sense of hierarchy that, yeah, you know, we got the body of Christ here, and you know, there are some that just, they just got it. It's the it factor. You know, it's the spiritual it factor. And then there are others that just don't have it, and so we, you know, we want to kind of make them feel okay about themselves, but still, I mean, everybody knows. No, not at all. In this qualifier, we think, or these parts that seem to be weaker, that we think less honorable, is the Apostle Paul saying, this is what has to be eradicated. This... He spilled no shortage of ink trying to eradicate this sense of hierarchy, this sense of superiority and less than kind of ideas that were prominent in the first century culture. 
Rather, what he is pointing to is the common yet egregiously erroneous perceptions and attitudes that were on full display in Corinth and can easily emerge in any church. And I just gave you a little bit of an example of what that might look like and maybe a little bit of exaggeration, but just this idea that some people are just better. They're just better than others. They, they have more to offer than others. And you have to ask the question, well, what do you mean by more? Really? Because I can tell you that those who... I can, I'm thinking of one person right now in my mind with a name and a face and a, a, a participation in the life of this church in profound ways. I'm thinking of a person right now in my mind, and I'll even say it's a, it's a female, and I know that her contribution to life in the body of Christ here is profound and significant, and hardly anybody would really know it. Because she prays for people faithfully and consistently and by name. She gravitates toward that. And you'd never know it. Because of that, is she weaker or less honorable or unpresentable? Of course not. Of course not. This egregious error of having a perception that is just secular, that's how the world thinks about just people in general, right? That's how we measure one another in our society. And that, that, that's why you have celebrity culture. And that's why you have sort of celebrity CEOs of corporations. I mean, that's, that's what that's all about. And we would bring that into the church. We would begin to assess one another in the body of Christ using those same kinds of ideas and conceptions. The Apostle Paul is seeking to eradicate that, and he's saying that this is the attitude that can emerge. Because these, these, those, those that are weaker, they seem weaker to us. They, they, we think them less honorable. Not they are weaker. Not they are less honorable. They just seem that way to us. We perceive them in that way. This is a hearty rebuke of what was going on in Corinth. And it should be a hearty rebuke to us if we have any of these kinds of attitudes in us. While there might be a tendency to think of some parts of the body as weak in comparison to other parts, they are, in fact, he says, indispensable. Translation, absolutely necessary. That's what he says about these quote-unquote weaker parts. Those parts of the body that seem common, less esteemed, even dishonorable, those are the parts of the body upon which, he says, we bestow the greater honor. It's an interesting term here, bestow. MacArthur, from his commentary, says this, the use of the verb for bestow literally means to put around. It suggests the idea of clothing the body in general. We spend more time and money clothing those parts of our body than the ones that are more presentable, such as the face and the hands. And by doing so, on these we bestow the more abundant honor. So it's this idea to kind of carry out this body metaphor 
the, just the torso of the body, the main parts of the body, we, we sort of spend time and money sort of robing it and covering it, adorning it, if you will. Even though what the, that part of our body does is just not noticeable. He's really referring probably to the, the internal aspects of our body. That's what he's really referring to. These things, like you can see someone hammering a nail. You can see someone crafting some ornate piece of jewelry. Or you can, you can see someone, you know, hear someone speaking. You can experience these outward parts of the body. You can see someone come in with lovely features and you can recognize that. But you can't see their heart beating. You, you can't watch the intricate nature of their respiratory system in operation. You can't see any of that. But we adorn it, and we clothe it, we kind of protect it. This is what he's talking about. We bestow it with greater honor. Charles Hodge, in his commentary, sort of elaborates on this point. He says, as in the human frame, the heart is more important than the tongue. So in the church, the gift of prayer is more important than eloquence. If you're wondering where I got my illustration before, I got it from right there. Those who, in the closet, however, obscure, wrestle with God, often do more for His glory and for the advancement of His kingdom than those who fill the largest space in the public eye. What would the tongue do without the lungs, which are neither seen nor heard? End quote. This is not just sort of like helpful, illustrative material here. This is the Apostle Paul using the spiritual, excuse me, the physical body to equate it with the substance and significance of the parts of the spiritual body. And he's compelling us to reflect upon our attitudes and our actions in relationship to ourselves in the body and our relationship to others in the body and how we view them and how we perceive giftings and, and usefulness and engagement in the body. Even the parts of the human body that the Apostle Paul refers to here as unpresentable. This is a likely reference to what we might refer to as private parts, if you will, to, to avoid getting too uh, a graphic or inappropriate. He says these are given special attention by virtue of the modesty with which we cover them. In other words, modesty is honorable. We, we, we give our unpresentable parts honor in our modesty, in covering them. While immodesty is dishonorable. So notice all this detail with human anatomy, this human anatomy metaphor. Paul is driving home this point of crucial contrast here. Not only does your own physical body demonstrate the unmistakable reality of mutual value and interdependence among the various parts of the body, but it also highlights how utterly and completely essential, indispensable, are those parts of the body that are not operating at the forefront of our moment-to-moment attention. I can tell you that all you have to do is, is look to the most stellar athlete on, for example, a basketball court who is in the prime of their life and they're operating at the highest levels of competition 
and they collapse with some kind of heart malfunction. There's your example. There's your example. No one who witnesses anything like that prior to it happening would expect that person to not be characterized by complete health and vitality. So we can have a a body of, of believers and we can major on the externals, the public sphere kinds of things, and we can razzmatazz our way through ministry and function and program and be very, very impressive and have a grave, deadly heart defect. That's the point. As a church... We could literally drop dead on the scene at any moment. That all of this razzmatazz, public gifting, and everything that you're seeing, if the indispensable parts of the body are not not being held in appropriate honor, are not being seen as they truly are, as indispensable, if they're being viewed as just weaker or unpresentable, or somehow without honor, that is a body that is inclined to die of some internal grave failure. This is is the, the, the vivid imagery that the Apostle Paul is providing for us here. Not only that, but our recognition of these indispensable parts of the body This is the very thing that protects us from divisions and envy and jealousy that are based upon this sinfully erroneous perception of what constitutes strength versus weakness or importance and significance versus insignificance. What makes one part of the body more important or less important than another? These erroneous perceptions, these worldly sinful perceptions that we would apply to members in the body of Christ. This is what protects us. This is what preserves and ensures the unity that is to be worked out in the body of Christ. He says in verse 24, the second part of verse 24 to the end of our section here in verse 26, it says, but God has so composed the body. God has so put together the body with various parts functioning in various ways, with various degrees of public and private effect, in various contexts of ministry and life and engagement. God's composed the body in this way, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no divisions in the body. There's the protection. This is why I did it. This is why you hold up and you esteem properly the parts of the body, even those that seem to be weaker, quote-unquote, even those that seem to be less honorable. You esteem them more highly because this is a, a protection. He says that there may be no divisions in the body. That's why. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Going back to the 
stellar athlete kind of image, the wisest and best athletes recognize, I don't need to just sort of exercise my external body, but I need to do things like eat right. I need to get regular checkups. I need to make sure that my heart's in good working order. I need to make sure I've got a good respiratory system. In other words, a good all-around athlete is not just concerned about arm strength or vertical jump or those kinds of external you know, physical measures. And they recognize that their strength, their ultimate strength, the longevity of their strength is completely interdependent with the parts of their body that no one is observing, that no one is paying tickets to see them use. And the Apostle Paul is driving that point home with this powerful, powerful truth. If one member suffers, this is true. All suffer together. On the other hand, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's a healthy body. I'll just conclude with one more reference from MacArthur's commentary. He says, I believe that the most surprising experience Christians will have is that of seeing the Lord present his rewards at the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ where every believer will be, quote, recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10. If there is such a thing as shock in heaven, I believe that is what most of us will feel when the secrets are revealed. Jesus said that those who seek to be first in this life will be last And that spiritual greatness is determined by the spirit of servanthood, not by high position or impressive achievements. It is clear from what Paul says in the present text that heavenly reward will be based not only on what we do with our own gifts and ministries, but on our attitudes toward and support of the gifts and ministries of other believers. End quote. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed.